This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 26 of Inside COVID-19. Coming up in this episode, with an easing in the lockdown on Friday, some tips for bosses on how to protect their staff who travel to work on public transport. An economist will explain that COVID-19 effectively means that the economy of South Africa will stand still for three years, adding two million new job seekers to a market where there won't be any new jobs. There's an update on vaccines and a warning from Professor Alan Whiteside, an update too on widely touted anti-COVID-19 drugs whose trials have failed, and the government press conference that detailed help for tourism companies, small businesses and spaza shops. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In the COVID-19 headlines today, South Africa recorded 247 new coronavirus infections and three more deaths on Monday. That raises the cases by just over 5% on the day to 4,793, while deaths are now at 90. The former Vice-Chancellor of UCT, Dr. Max Price, has added his voice to those who are warning that the easing of restrictions on May the 1st, i.e. on Friday, will usher in a significant increase in COVID-19 infections in South Africa, Writing in the Daily Maverick, Professor Price, who is a medical doctor by training, says there is no reason to believe that after the lockdown is eased on May the 1st, South Africa's rate of transmission will be any different to the currently exponentially higher rates in other countries. Coming up, Discovery Health's Chief Executive Dr. Ryan Noach gives us his thoughts on the Prof's thesis. In the UK, a fully recovered Prime Minister Boris Johnson was back at work yesterday promising that shops could reopen, provided they keep customers at least two metres apart, but that schools will be closed until at least June. Johnson says his country now needs to prepare for a second phase of the battle against the coronavirus. The UK has been the fifth hardest hit country in the world, with just over 21,000 COVID-19 deaths surpassed only by the USA at 57,000, Italy at 27,000, Spain at almost 24,000, and France at 23,000. Globally, the confirmed number of COVID-19 cases has now passed 3 million, with the US far and away the most infections at just over a million. Johns Hopkins University reports that the worst-hit country per capita by some distance is Belgium, with a mortality rate of 63 per 100,000 residents, while Spain is at 50, Italy 44, France at 34, and the UK at 32. All five of these countries are reporting a double-digit figure mortality rate for each 100 confirmed cases. The US's rate continues to grow and is now at 17 deaths per 100,000 of population, 
and the observed mortality rate is at 5.7%. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Ryan Noach is with us. He's uh, been on the Inside COVID-19 program a few times. But Ryan, this is now uh, quite an important message that we need to unpack for the rest of South Africa. You guys are an essential service, so you've had people coming to work. It's something that people are scratching their heads about is how do they physically get people to come into the office after the 1st of May, and 40% of South Africans presumably will be doing so, without getting sick when they're using public transport. How did Discovery handle this dilemma? This was a major concern of ours, Alec, and to be honest, at first we thought we could rely on public transport. Uh, As you know, the regulations were that public transport could operate limited hours between 5 and 9 in the morning to get people to work. But within the first day or two, we recognized two things. The first, that the public transport was unreliable at that point. And secondly, and more worryingly, that actually they weren't obeying at all times the spatial distancing regulations inside the public transport vehicles. And we were putting employees at risk. So we stopped that immediately and we had to come up with alternate plans, which were costly but important. Um, I think in this situation, we've prioritized employee safety over everything else, including cost. So we hired a large number of vehicles. Uh, which we did through an existing partner of Discovery Insure, Avis, who actually gave us uh, very competitive rates and very good deal and actually placed a lot of their vehicles for storage in our basements, in our buildings. And so we hired vehicles for our employees, gave them their own private vehicles, those that could, to drive to work. This meant that they were completely safe and that they also had reliable transport in their own means. And in some parts of the country, particularly the Western Cape, we had to make arrangements to get preferential access for shuttles, uh, where we bought up all the seats to ensure spatial distancing to, uh, that employees were protected. When you say shuttles, that's not the normal minicab taxis? No, these are transport shuttles between hubs. Um, they are for public use. Uh, what we did was we prepaid them to ensure that they had a small number of people per vehicle. Um, I think the minibus taxis now can have a maximum of four people plus the driver. And so we bought up the space to make sure they didn't fill it with anybody else. Do any of your staff use uh, taxis? I think there are staff that are using public transport, yes. Uh, We've run a significant education campaign to try and make sure that they don't get into a public transport vehicle if it's not safe. And so we've worked with them to understand what safe means um, and we've made alternate plans wherever they need to. So they will presumably be wearing their masks uh, when they leave home? We've given all staff, every employee working in our offices, masks and gloves. We reissue on a daily basis and we've encouraged them certainly to use those uh, wherever they are exposed to any third party. And uh, as of this week, in fact, we've insisted that it's mandatory to wear the mask at all times when they're in our offices, linked to the president's request that we do so late last week. Ryan, a fellow medical doctor like yourself, who's who's gone a different route, uh, Max Price, who was the vice chancellor of UCT, wrote quite a strong article that was in Daily Maverick, where he says that our low infection rate at the moment is 
is the calm before the storm. Essentially, he says there's no reason why we will not avoid the high infection rates of other parts of the world. I had a look earlier on at some of the numbers that are, that are on the worst affected company, the countries rather, those five in Europe, and the infection rates there are high. The mortality rates are are exponentially greater than we have in South Africa. Is this a similar kind of prognosis that you have at Discovery? The truth is we don't know. I also read uh, Prof. Max Price's article, which I thought was a very eloquent piece. Uh, the, the real truth is that we don't know. We have an outbreak model uh, that we've been tracking, and thankfully the country has fallen way below our outbreak projections. Um, and we think it has to be because of really excellent enforcement, early decisive movement by our president and the government, the Minister of Health, and their strong leadership for one of the most onerous and stringent lockdowns in the world. And we think that's what's flattened the curve. If that is what's happened, then it's outstanding that we've been able to give our private healthcare system and our public healthcare system jointly, and they're working closely together, the time to collaborate, to purchase PPE and ventilators, to prepare their policies and processes, and to get everything ready for the wave when it comes. On the more optimistic side, as Prof. Price said in his article, Maybe there are actually some factors that are specific to South Africa or to the Southern Hemisphere, for example, that may be favorable. And there have been various theories uh, around this that have been bandied about, none of which are proven, but all of which are worth hearing about and hoping for. Uh, the one that I think has got a lot of coverage is the BCG theory, um, and that is that countries that have routine mandatory BCG vaccination against TB at birth tend to have a lower prevalence of disease. This was published in the New York Institute's journal, um, and really it's, it's a correlation at this point, but the correlation is stark and revealing. And where it's particularly interesting is in Europe, in Portugal, BCG vaccination, vaccination is mandatory at birth. In Spain, it is not. Genetically similar populations in the same region exposed to the same climatic conditions, drastically different outbreaks. Spain, as we know, has had a terrible outbreak with high mortality. Portugal has had a well-contained outbreak. Um, so BCG, there are correlations, but there's no evidence yet. I think the next theory which Prof. Price did talk about in his piece is climate. Uh, perhaps the warmer climate that we've been having and that the whole Southern Hemisphere has been having protects the Southern Hemisphere more so than the colder Northern Hemisphere at this time of year. We've seen Australia, New Zealand um, and South Africa with quite favorable flat curves, uh, and it may well be climate related. In this regard, time will tell. Um, warmth and sunlight does have two, things, two effects on the virus. Ultraviolet light denatures the virus. Um, and so the sun, you know, obviously in summer there's a much higher UV index and more ultraviolet light. And the second is saliva droplets tend to evaporate much quicker in the heat than in the cold. And uh, as those droplets evaporate, the virus doesn't survive as long on inanimate, inanimate ob objects. So those are two interesting theories. No, denatures, Ryan, the virus dies. Yeah. It effectively dies. When we talk about a protein breaking down, it's uh, denaturing. 
the other theory that's a new theory that, again, I haven't seen any evidence on at all. So I'm just sharing what, what we've been reading, but I, I can't vouch for its veracity, is that Southern Hemisphere folk populations tend to have much higher vitamin D levels, whereas Northern Hemisphere folk who are not exposed to the same hours of daylight and sunlight, on average, do tend to have lower vitamin D levels. That's factual. Is there a theory where vitamin D is actually prevent, preventive uh, against this virus, uh, either on an infectivity level or on a severity of disease level. And there are, of course, there is, of course, there are data that demonstrates that vitamin D plays an important part in our immune systems. So is it perhaps vitamin D? Again, I cannot say, but certainly there's, there's some thought around this. Um, the, the other thought is that uh, coronavirus itself is a relatively common virus. Uh, there are seven known coronaviruses, SARS-CoV-2, which is this new novel coronavirus responsible for COVID-19, is actually the seventh identified coronavirus. So the four common ones are responsible for the common cold. And it could be that people living in close proximity, particularly kids, uh, have developed a level of immunity to the common coronaviruses, that has some level of relevance and protection, immunological protection, against this coronavirus. Another unproven theory, uh, but another one that's being spoken about. The, the point is that it's my hope, sincere hope, that not only has the lockdown been successful in flattening the curves and giving us time, but maybe there's some other factor that is yet to be identified, which hopefully is resulting in us having a less severe epidemic. The point you make about Portugal and Spain is, is, uh, is a fascinating one and one that is more and more being studied, I, I'm, I have no doubt. But you spoke about kids. What about when our kids start going back to school? Would that be something that could spark uh, a wave of infections? Look, there are two different schools of thought here. So to answer your first question directly, Yes, it will likely spark a spark in infections. Uh, kids seem to contract the disease, have asymptomatic or mild disease. It's not to say that there aren't some kids that have got sick. There are, but relative to the older populations, very low morbidity in children. Uh, but of relevance, uh, asymptomatic carriers of this novel coronavirus seem to be the spreaders. Unlike the SARS epidemic of 2008, in that epidemic, um, the, you, you were only contagious once you started exhibiting symptoms. And therefore, containing symptomatic people limited spread of the disease, even though it had a very high R0 or reproductive factor. In this disease, COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus seems to be highly contagious in the pre-symptomatic phase. And so kids going to school who will be asymptomatic carriers of the disease will probably be spreaders. And that may well result in a spark in, in infection rates. The bottom line is we've got to get back to normal society. There's got to be a new normal. We've got to, we've got to get back to normal life. And there are two opposing schools of thought here. And I'm not sufficiently knowledgeable or expert to know which is correct. But the UK government has been talking a lot about herd immunity. You would have heard them talking a lot about that. They delayed their lockdown because they uh, 
they claimed that exposing people to the virus for longer would push up the R naught and get us to the herd immunity threshold faster. And once we reach a herd immunity threshold, uh, then you know infectivity becomes far less of a problem across the community. So there is one school of thought that says release people earlier, get herd immunity uh, levels up, keep the elderly and those living with chronic illnesses who are more at risk of dying or of severe illness, keep them at home, but drive up these herd immunity levels. There's another view that says very slow, very cautious release from lockdown, uh, schools being one of the last to be released, and in so doing, uh, you know, small reactive areas of infection outbreaks, you know, treat those lockdowns nodally and locally, um, overwhelm each of those lockdowns, make sure the healthcare system can deal with each of those individual outbreaks, but continue with the phased release. Uh, I think one of the big factors about school children is that if you don't send them to school, you do keep carers at home. And in our society, the carers are, in many cases, productive parts of our economy. And if we are to resuscitate our economy and kickstart it, we need to get some of those carers back. And so there are some real tense forces pulling in opposite directions around return to school. What a subject and one that we continue to explore with Dr. Ryan Noach, who's the Chief Executive of Discovery Health. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. I love reading Kevin Lings's work. He's the chief economist at Stanlib, and he's joining us now. Kevin, you've got to be one of the most productive economists that I know, but, <laughs> but you also focus a lot on what's really happening in the real economy. And today, your report that you sent out to clients uh, speaks about the contraction in GDP this year of 5%. Now, I've heard anywhere from 4% on the great optimists to 10%, which actually came out in a Business for South Africa uh, meeting recently. Just just take us through, what does a 5% contraction in the economy mean and how much of this is due to COVID-19? So, thanks, Alex. The 5% is uh, just the consensus. So, this is a survey of 24 economists in South Africa. And if you like, this represents the average of what those 24 economists, but you're right, there's quite a big range in the forecasts. But the average is at minus 5%. And, and this forecast was published at, you know, last day or so, so it's fairly recent. What it means is that in 2020, the economy adjusted for inflation, which is important, so in real terms, uh, the economy is expected to decline in size by 5%. Now, I I guess it depends on your perspective. 5% may not sound like much, but in real economic terms, that is enormous. You would have to go back Uh, decades in South Africa to find anything like that on an annual basis. Uh, During the financial crisis, uh, South Africa didn't have anything like that magnitude of decline. We declined at the time by one and a half percent, and that was the global financial crisis. So you can also look at it and say any time your economy is growing at less than your population growth, and in South Africa, the population grows around about 1.2, 1.3%. Anytime we grow at less than that, then we're doing damage to the 
the economy because obviously income per person then is falling. So you can imagine if you decline by 5%, there's a massive fall off in income per person. We're becoming significantly poorer uh, in rands, let alone in dollars. So this is a a massive fall off for any economy. And the 5% decline may end up being a fairly modest estimate at this stage, it can get, as you mentioned early on, it can be worse than this. How long is it going to take for us to get back to the point that uh, we were at? Let's just go with what the consensus is, what the average. It says a 5% decline this year, followed by growth of 2% next year, and then the year after 1.6. Now, if we achieve the 2% and then the one6 that would be better growth than we've had in the preceding five years. So you would you would question whether we're able to uh, generate that type of return, even on a recovery phase. But let's say we did. By the end of 2022, we would still not be back at where we were in 2019. In other words, the damage caused by the 5% is so severe that we would have to grow by more than 2% and then another 1.6 to try and make that back which says that over at this stage, if I use the consensus, over a three-year basis, South Africa is still going to be worse off relative to where we were in 2019. That means we would have, the economy would be smaller over a three-year period, uh, which you can imagine what that does to unemployment, to income per person, to all kinds of things that we're trying to improve in this country. So what I'm hoping should come out of this is, yes, we can't avoid the minus 5% this year, but what are we doing to ensure that over the coming years the bounce back is way bigger than 2% a year? It's got to be significantly better to try and make a difference. And I'm hoping that in time that becomes the real acute focus and that we put a lot of effort into how we're going to generate that. Let's hope that you're right and that we aren't wasting this crisis because the way it's looking or the way that the consensus is, it's almost like we're standing still for three years and maybe a little longer than that. The economy stands still, but the population keeps growing. That's right. It's exactly what's happening. The economy would be standing still for three years, perhaps a little bit worse than that, but let's say standing still. Meanwhile, your population is growing at uh, 1.3% a year. But given the age profile of our population, it would mean that uh, we would have a net uh, increase in the labor force of 600,000 people a year. So over the next three years, you're starting to approach 2 million people that would be trying to enter the labor market, trying to find employment. And what are the chances of generating enough jobs to accommodate those 2 million people over the next three years if your economy is standing still? And then what are the social consequences of doing that? What this crisis is going to do, once we on top of it, it's going to highlight the huge need to lift growth and employment, otherwise the damage on all kinds of levels, inequality, unemployment, poverty, all of those things are going to look uh, extreme relative to where they are now. So it's all going to become about how do we get how do we get the bounce back? How do we utilize this to now have a much stronger recovery in year two and year three? And how do we do that? Well, you've got to, as far as I'm concerned, fully embrace the private sector. By that, I mean the private business sector. I don't think we've done that at all. I think we've done a whole range of things around uh, social 
uh, needs, social distribution, uh, and a lot of our policies tend to continue to focus on that. But what we haven't done at all is understand the need to improve business confidence, business investment, the need for government and private sector to partner, be it private-public partnerships. You've basically got to unlock the balance sheet of the corporate sector. It's the only balance sheet that has any strength in South Africa. Government's balance sheet is wrecked. The SOE's balance sheet is desperate. Household balance sheets are going to be under enormous pressure. So the corporate balance sheet is the only balance sheet that remains reasonably intact and can be leveraged. And and that, to me, is where the focus has got to be. And I would start with private-public partnerships, try and draw the private sector into the economy, use that to develop some vital infrastructure. But then government has to step out of the way. It has to find ways to deregulate the system and allow the private sector to do what it does best, which is create jobs and grow economies. And we just haven't done that sufficiently. Is there a model somewhere in the world that uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa could follow? Well, there's lots of successes as far as I can see. Most of East Asia has done something similar. Take away the politics of any individual country. A lot of their success has been uh, by government indicating the areas they want to have developed. So there's nothing wrong with that. But then allowing the private sector the freedom to, to start to get involved in those sectors. And uh, private-public partnerships in East Asia have been used very successfully, whether uh, you're looking at a Singapore or you're looking at um, parts of Malaysia or uh, even even a, a place like uh, Indonesia has done that successfully. Or if you go across to South America and look at a Chile, um, there are lots of examples where as you allow the private sector more scope, as you deregulate, step away from the outright control of all facets of the economy, private sector tends to be energized. So I think there are many emerging markets um, that have done very well. I would also argue South Korea many, many decades ago did that and did that very successfully where the government said these are the sectors, these are the industries we want to develop, uh, but we need the private sector to, to do the heavy lifting here. Um, and so, so I'm not suggesting that government has to step away entirely from uh, the economic management but not try and control every facet of how the economy operates. So COVID-19, if that message gets through, might have a bright side. Well, it, 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 it's rushing a lot of problems at us. We knew these problems existed. We knew government finances was deteriorating. We knew the SOEs were in financial difficulty, etc. And And what I think it's done is it ru- it's rushed those problems at us and it's forced us to answer some of those questions very, very quickly. Not all of them, but some of them. And I think the response from government so far in terms of trying to manage COVID-19 has been good, and certainly by global standards, is a standout feature of this country. And I don't see why we can't take that same form of leadership um, and decision-making into how we manage the economy more broadly. I also think what it's done is it's highlighted uh, the, the fragility of government finances and of the SOEs and that we have to make harder choices. And I think that government is already doing that uh, with some of the SOEs and we'll have to do that with a, a broader range of uh, decisions. So hopefully there's a learning process that's going on and we and and the president and his cabinet become a lot more emboldened to making strong decisions that take the economy forward. And not every decision has to be a debated political outcome. 
Uh, it can literally be, let's have a look at what's good for uh, the economy and good for jobs and good for growth. Inside COVID-19, from Business. Professor Alan Whiteside, lovely to have you, Alan. See, there are two things, really. The antibody test is the first thing. When everybody can get back to normal again, in inverted commas, if there's ever going to be a normal again, you're based in the UK, and there has been quite a lot of discussion around this subject. What's the state of play there? We're sitting on the edge of our chairs waiting for an announcement. We haven't got one yet. It seems to have slightly fallen off the radar in the UK at any rate. By the way, one thing I will say about this whole epidemic is I've just become aware of how insular all the reporting is around the world. If you go to CNN, you get stories from America. If you go to the BBC, you get stories from Britain. And it's just incredible. We don't know what's going on around the world in the research area. So I believe that there are people working at the Karolinska Institute, at Louis Pasteur Institute in Paris, in all the universities in the States and in the UK, but we just don't know what's going on. My colleague Linda van Tilburg, who's based in London, had a wonderful interview with Professor Adrian Hill from Oxford University. They're the guys who have been doing Ebola vaccine investigations, and, and they've now been given £20 million by the British government to accelerate the vaccine production there. He says they'll have a vaccine before the end of the year. or Well, they've started the human trials already. And yet everywhere else that we read, Alan, and this is your game. I mean, you're a professor. You're chair of the global health policy in, in, at Waterloo in Canada. You've got all the credentials from here to next week. Why are we being told it's going to take at least 18 months by other people to get a vaccine, whereas someone like Professor Hill from Oxford is saying he might have it this year? Well, I think we have to be very cautious with the vaccine because there are so many stages before you can roll it out. First of all, you need to find out if what you've got as a candidate is safe. So you inject a very few human subjects. After you've done all the rats and mice and monkeys and all the rest of it, because if it's something you put in somebody's arm and they fall over dead, you don't want to be doing that. Equally, you don't want people to have severe side effects. So you've got the stage one, which is trials. Then you've got to check whether or not it's going to be effective. Will it actually protect against people getting COVID or any disease? And the only way to do that is to have them exposed to that disease and to see that they don't get it. It's a real problem with something as deadly as this one. So it's a long process. The shortest, I think, we could expect eight months. I do actually think Mm -hmm. we could see something by the end of the year. There is so much money going into this. And, of course, we're building off the really amazing uh, work that was done uh, unsuccessfully as yet in looking at AIDS vaccines. We don't have an AIDS vaccine, but there's so much work being done in that area. Mm. Okay. Uh, Did you get a chance to, coming back to South Africa, and, and clearly you know South Africa very well. This is your home country, I guess, if you were to go back. Professor Salim Karim's presentation that he presented to the country uh, a week or so ago? Yes, it was outstanding. A clear bit of science communicated to the South African public. Yeah, I've I've looked at it a few times. What is it telling you as a... You can interpret these things for us a whole lot better than we can. Well, I'm afraid, but it's not really very good news because what it's telling us is we're in for quite a long haul. Uh, Having said that, of course, the question is... To what extent is this disease going to spread in our populations in South Africa? And there's a really excellent piece in today's Daily Maverick, written by Max Price, who was of UCT, saying, well, why haven't we had an epidemic? Because let's face it, 
with a relatively small number of cases is confounding. He suggests that we're just on the cusp of moving into having a serious epidemic. What Slim's saying is we've got some advantages, for example, our HIV experience, not just in terms of the science, but also in terms of our response, community workers out in the field, means we can mobilize. We have got science there to help us with that. And he's saying we've got a very small window of opportunity in which to do it, because once this takes off, as you can see from the Johns Hopkins graph, it is really scary. Is Max Price on the money? We'll see, won't we? I think he is. I think he is. Sadly, I think he is. I think it is just a matter of time. I mean, the other country where I work a lot is Swaziland, where they've just got 59 cases. And it's really hard. And we saw this again. I have to come back to my extensive experience in the AIDS epidemic, it's really hard to shout the forest is burning, and that's how Slim ended his presentation, or the forest is burning, uh, when nobody can see the flames. In fact, they can't even see the smoke. That's the real challenge for us in South Africa moving forward. Now, I think we also have another advantage, which is something you guys will remember, and that was Clem Sunter and his amazing scenario work back in the 1987 and on which I think had a huge impact on the transition in South Africa. So we have got the ability to develop these sorts of tools. We have got the ability to communicate them to people. We've probably got the political will and to a degree that we've never had before. Let's see what happens. Again, I have to say, I think that South Africa is really in a powerful position to respond to the epidemic because of our experience with HIV and AIDS. In exactly the same way as some of the Asian countries have responded incredibly well because of their experience with SARS. So, yes, I do think that uh, it's a very bleak situation, but it's not without hope. My real worry is the country of Eswatini or, and Lesotho, which hasn't even reported a case yet. Alan, if you can have a look at this and interpret it for us, this is from worldometers.info, who've got a fantastic database on the whole COVID-19 issue, as well as uh, tracking individual countries. Just to go from the top, it tells us that we've, and this was last night, 4,793 cases, 90 deaths. But that's the logarithmic scale of what's going on in South Africa. The curve has been seriously flattened, according to this. But is what Max Price is saying, and you have to respect him as an academic, and presumably other people, that... When the lockdown ends, that flattening of the curve is actually not going to stay that way. This epidemic is not even four months old. We honestly don't know. It is going to vary from place to place around the country. And, you know, you won't see an homogenous epidemic uh, sweeping across South Africa. And it will depend on national subnational responses as well. Just the last point here, if you have a look again on your screen there, daily new cases, they appeared to peak there on the 23rd of April at 318, but then came down, but yesterday uh, was up 247, which is one of the highest, what, one, two, three, four, fifth highest yeah. so far. So it would speak to what you're saying. Uh, we haven't seen the worst of this by, by some way. I think that's true. What is also fascinating is if you're like me and you spend time looking at these data points, you get these waves of epidemics where they go up and down and up and down, and you can't read too much into one day's figures. Certainly in the UK we've seen that, but we are looking at the trend. I look at the daily figures with interest deaths is the, is the key one. By the way, we need to be also grateful in South Africa we can measure some things, which we can't do in the rest of Africa. We've got a good idea of what's going on. In the UK, 
they only report deaths in hospital. Everything else is lagged by two or three weeks. Okay, let's just uh, call that up. Yeah, there we go. 21,000 deaths in the UK. So comparatively and those are speaking, just in the hospital. so we believe that in community care and particularly in the uh, care homes, we're looking at some serious issues. A global race is on for a vaccine or a treatment for the coronavirus. While a vaccine could be 6 to even 18 months away, many existing drugs are being tested to see if it could treat COVID-19. It includes hydroxychloroquine, a treatment for malaria once started by President Donald Trump as an effective cure. And remdesivir, developed by an American company called Gilead Sciences. But the company has had a setback in China where a clinical trial is reported to have failed. Professor Joshua Schafstein from the John Hopkins University explained to Bloomberg how we should interpret all the studies. Hydroxychloroquine has not been being shown to work in different studies um, and may even be dangerous, although the best most high-quality studies really haven't been published for that. Um, And uh, there's uh, also a whole bunch of studies coming out on remdesivir, which is an antiviral drug, um, that have yet to come out. Um, And there will be some studies, I think, in the relatively short term about the effectiveness of convalescent plasma. And there may be others that that come out. I think we're going to hit a period where there will be a lot of studies coming out. And you know, it's important to look at different things, not just the overall result, but if there is an effect, how big an effect, at what point in the illness is the study being done, because there could be a medication that works very well early, but not so well late, or vice versa. There's going to be a lot of information coming out, and, you know, what I'm going to be doing is looking at people who really understand viral illness and how to treat it to kind of interpret all the different studies that are, will be around. But Josh, how long does it take to actually understand all of the unintended consequences of a drug? And as you rightly say, at what stage they should be administered? Are, are we three months, six months to, to better understand it? Well, you know, for a particular drug, it depends the studies that are available, you know, and how they all get uh, looked at together. But I think it's that for many of these, it'll be months, not many months, but months, not weeks or days. Um, but I think we will know more about what works and at what point in the course of the illness. It was revealed at the ministerial briefing on the response against the coronavirus today that a total of 3.3 billion rand had been paid out by the government for UIF. But ministers indicated that many employers have not applied for funding to support their workers. The processing of applications for the tourism industry has been put on hold and no money has been paid due to a court proceeding which is underway. Minister Maloko Kubayin Gubani said the fund has been challenged because of the use of triple BEE rules. There is no part of the tourism industry globally that is not impacted negatively because of COVID-19. Travel bans, airline groundings, heightened restrictions to movement, not only across borders, but also within our country, has meant that tourism-related activities are non-existent. As previously reported, and as part of government's intervention to mitigate the effects of COVID-19, the Department of Tourism opened an application portal for the COVID-19 Tourism Relief Fund, 
to the value of 200 million. However, it is a matter of public knowledge that the department was served with court papers by both AfriForum and Solidarity in an attempt to set aside the scheme on grounds of its transformational characteristics as it upholds the broad-based Black Economic Empowerment Act. In respect of the court, while business was still able to apply, the department has kept the processing of the application on hold. The department will be guided by the outcome of the court, but stands ready to support the businesses in distress. Thus far, over 10,000 applications were received, and the court proceedings took place this morning, and we're waiting the outcome from the court. We've commenced work with global, continental, and national stakeholders to develop a post-COVID tourism recovery strategy. Suffice at this stage to say that the industry will be focusing on three phases, survival, recovery, and then prosperity. On labor and employment matters, government calls on all employers to apply for the COVID-19 benefits through the Temporary Employer-Employee Relief Scheme on behalf of their employees. To date, the UIF has received just over 103,000 applications from employers representing about 1.75 million employees. In total, the UIF has over 1.8 million employers registered on its database, representing more than 8 million workers. As of today, the cumulative amount paid since April 27 is 3.3 billion, just over 3.3 billion. Of the received applications, the UIF has processed 59,000 employers' applications, which means that more than 862,000 employees will receive their benefits. About 10,000 applications could not be processed due to errors, and the affected companies have been notified to correct their applications and resubmit. Some of the errors identified relate to incorrect banking details, making it impossible for payments to be processed. The UIF is working around the clock to meet the extraordinary volumes of requests for assistance presented by the COVID-19 pandemic. The UIF call center, which initially had 75 agents, has increased its capacity now, has 400 agents operating the toll-free number 0800-030-007. More call center agents will be added should the need arises. Furthermore, in terms of the department's work on guidelines to assist South African business. The guidelines will help employers identify risk level in the workplace and to determine what appropriate control measures to implement. It focuses on the engineering controls, administrative controls, safe work practice, and personal protective equipment. And the members of the public who enter the workplaces or are likely to be exposed to the activities. Under small business development, since COVID-19 relief measures were announced, 530 million rent was set aside to support SMMEs, and the Department of Small Business Development announced the SMME relief scheme to support payroll, rental, and utilities over three months. 
To date, the scheme has approved over 235 million rents, protecting over 11,000 jobs. Small Business Minister Nchaveni said that Spaza shops will also be receiving support and that they have received 104 applications from Spaza shops, of which 88 have been approved. What is also important is that if the Spaza shop chooses to get the full amount of 7,000 as revolving credit, they can do that. Why the number is too low is just opened, but given the restriction of movement, we are using the net, we have partnered with NetBank, so the accessing of NetBank branches because they are not working normal working hours, it's, uh, it's, it has proven a challenge, though they are using also the boxer stores. But we are working with NetBank to improve that coverage. We are also engaging with the post office to make sure that we can then use the postal uh, offices for the registration of most puzzle shops. The database does not reside within the Department of uh, Small Business Development as the licensing or permitting of Spazashop is the responsibility of municipalities. We are working with municipalities. With, they've got a database of over 130,000 approved uh, Spazashops to trade within the country. So we are working with municipalities to make sure that the uh, Spazashops can access the scheme. The LED offices of municipalities will uh, kick in within uh, this week or next week to directly call the spaza shops within their database to apply the scheme, for the scheme and also to support them to complete the application forms. And this is in line with our partnership with Salga and we must say we are grateful and we must extend our appreciation to NetBank and in, the, in terms of the partnership, but also that they've availed the Boxer, their funding desk at Boxer stores across the country. The minister also gave more details on how small, micro and medium enterprises could access help from the state. We have agreed with the UIF and the Department of Labor that those SMMEs who, have, who had not registered for UIF or those who had registered their employees for UIF but not honored their payments with UIF, we are going to pass them over to UIF for them to, be, to, to do the acknowledgement of debt and also to the, be paid in terms of payroll assistance on our part and TERS on the part of UIF. And we have said on our part, given that the internet cafes are closed, we are re requesting that SMMEs who do not have access to printers, photocopiers and scanners in their homes, they must uh, take photographs using their phones. We will use our network of SIDA uh, uh, in our regions and also the LED units of municipalities to make sure that we've got the, uh, the necessary documentation when they've, uh, when they've been considered for application because we've got, it will be just to verify that the documentation is, is, is correct. And um, the other thing maybe on the not freelancers per se, we, part of the schemes we are finalizing with the Department of Labor is how do we support what we call artisanary businesses and tradesmen, and that's the scheme that we're going to talk about later. But on our part, we are also, we've also finalized the scheme to support bakeries and confectionaries, and we're going to announce the details on how that is done, and also to support the automotive aftermarket sales. We'll announce that, how that will be done. The ministers indicated that whether lawyers or domestic workers would be allowed to work in phase four of the lockdown would become clear when the government has considered the feedback from commerce and industry. This is Linda von Tolberg for Buzz News. This has been episode 26 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio.
This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.